judges might issue a ruling that says, like, you violated the APA. Like, you did not treat like situations alike. And then say, go back to the drawing board. And then the SEC could then just deny for other reasons. Grayscale might win the case and then still not be able to convert to an ETF. Hello there. How are you all? I am back in the UK. I am back in Bedford, the home of Bitcoin. It's good to be home. I had an amazing time in Miami, and I just want to give a big shout out to my entire team. They worked so hard to pull this all together. I really appreciate everything they've done. Anyway, welcome to the What Bitcoin Did podcast, which is brought to you by Iris Energy, the largest NASDAQ-listed Bitcoin miner using 100% renewable energy. Today on the show, we have James Safar. Now, James came highly recommended from my good friend Steve McClurg. He told us he is the man on ETFs, and as always, Steve was right. We've covered GPTC a few times on the show, but clearly people have very specific views. We've got Sun and Shine's perspective. We've had David Bailey's perspective on the other side. So it's great to have James on the show, someone who is a journalist who looks at it from more of a centrist position. Now, I think you're going to love this one, but hit me up if you have any questions or feedback. My email is hello at whatbitcoindid.com. And also, for you Aussies down under, I'm coming. I'm coming to see you. I'm coming to see the kangaroos and koalas. You can keep your spiders and your snakes, but we're coming down. Me, Danny, we're going to come and make a live podcast. It's going to be in Sydney, September the 9th. If you want to grab a ticket, head over to whatbitcoindid.com and click on WBD Live. All right, enjoy the show. When I launched it, there was uh, it was me. I had this little Peli case that was about this big. You'd get two mics in there, two mic stands, a Zoom H6, which we don't have. Actually, no, it was little handheld stands, wasn't it? It was those mm-hmm. weighted ones. And uh, I would uh, fly, do the interview, go to the hotel, edit it. But I was so shit at editing, I, I knew how to do half of it in GarageBand and half in Final Cut, so I had to go between the two. It's more than I know how to do. Yeah. So. <laughs> and then I would publish it all. And then I would get up the next day, go somewhere else, and it was like that. And then Danny wrote to me and said, uh, I'll take over the uh, production <laughs> for you. And then... Um, then we got Ben on board. Ben became, uh, uh, he did the publishing, then the editing. Then Emma came on board to arrange, organize us all. And then we got Neil, a researcher in. We got Austin on our partnerships, and now Connor as a support and production. It's just, it's one of these things that grows. But you're used to the bigger productions, man. Uh, this, no, this is bigger than, I mean, we have setups similar to this in our offices in Bloomberg, but like this full, full fledged video and this. For the most part, it's reserved for certain special things. But obviously, TV is a whole different animal. But this is not a little different. But now you've got, what, three or four massive pellicates? <laughs> yeah. Well, that's come down. It has come down, yeah. Yeah, so our last camera guy used to come, what, eight cases, nine eight cases? cases? Yeah. <laughs> We've got much more efficient. It used to take about, like, half a day to set up. Uh, and then Danny just was like, no, this is wrong. So Danny, we got all new equipment. And he can set up, what, about an hour? Yeah, well, that was a race, but I got it done an hour the other day. Yeah, so nice. it was quicker, better. And anyway, good to see you again, James. I, I, I realized we'd met before. Yeah, we met briefly for like two minutes at Bitcoin. I introduced myself as like one of the Bitcoin, Bloomberg ETF guys you referenced on your podcast a couple of times. That's me. So what do you do off at Bloomberg? So I'm an ETF research analyst, but really we cover the entire asset management industry. So anybody that manages money, really, we're, we write about that. Primarily focus on ETFs. I used to cover uh, commodities and cryptos. So I helped bring our commodities crypto analyst, who's actually based in Miami now. Uh, So I was working with him and I was personally involved in cryptos. And he was like, we're going to start covering it. Like, what do you know? And I just went from zero to 100 with him. So naturally, anything that goes over that overlap of asset management, crypto, is like squarely in my wheelhouse of of expertise. And (laughs) 
GBTC, obviously, fits right there. You, you know my audience, right? Oh, yeah. I know your audience. I, li- I listen to a lot of your podcasts. You're one of my very few select podcasts I listen to most episodes. Thank you, man. I appreciate yeah. that. Well, you're, you're swearing a lot at the moment to uh, my <laughs> audience. They're not, not going to like the word cryptos. Yeah, crypto. yeah, I know. But I have to say crypto because I do. I, I obviously separate crypto and Bitcoin from my personal perspective. But yeah. I, it, in Bloomberg, it's crypto. It's all crypto for the most part. Right. Uh, and I know for a fact that Bitcoin is not crypto as far as you're concerned. And got to separate that. I'm shit, good man. with that. Yeah, gotta separate that. Well, listen, it's good to see you again. Um, you came highly recommended by a mutual friend as well. Uh, Steve McClurg is a very good friend of mine. Actually, I'm, we're seeing him tonight. Tonight, yeah. Yeah, a very good friend of mine. I love that guy. And he is like, you got to get James on the show. you got to get James on the show. Yeah, I, uh, I he, they just filed for an Ethereum futures ETF, Valkyrie. I don't know if you know that. They just filed yesterday or a few days ago. God damn it, Steve, you shit coin. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to have to have a chat with him about that tomorrow. No, yeah. I, didn't, I didn't know he'd filed that. Yeah, so, so basically uh, related to all this, Grayscale, they filed for a few, three ETFs. A privacy ETF, which is going to invest in Zcash, BS, all this stuff. And then uh, a, a Bitcoin composite ETF, which is like, I kind of think it's a middle finger to the SEC for them not allowing GBC to convert because they're basically saying, we're going to invest 40% in international spot Bitcoin ETFs and then 60% in Bitcoin miners. And I think it like gets under most of the SEC rules. They can still deny it and force them to withdraw it. But like they're just saying, like here, here's spot Bitcoin ETFs that exist everywhere else in the world. We're going to invest in those and then allow U.S. investors to get access to them. That's what they're trying to do. So they're uh, trying to basically create a spot ETF yeah. by basketing yeah. international spot ETFs, Bitcoin <laughs> ETFs, and lumping some miners in for a little bit of leverage. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So, so cool they, product. It's, yeah. And then they also filed for an Ethereum futures ETF. And then we've seen like literally five or six issuers in the last week file for an Ethereum futures ETF. It's all related to this big GBTC situation because it's all a fight with the SEC. Yeah. Well, there's a lot we can get into, man. Um, <laughs> we could sit here for three hours and probably not cover everything. So, Well, we, we will do our best. Let's see what we can get through. Okay. So um, to, set, to, to set it for you right now, uh, me and Danny were talking about this beforehand. A couple of years ago, if you asked me about Bitcoin ETF, I'd be like, yeah, let's have it. Let's bring it. Yeah, definitely bring it. Uh, I'm now, I'm, it's not even that I'm uh, ambivalent to it. I kind of think they are ultimately bad for Bitcoin. Ultimately bad. And we'll come to that. But I think it's mainly because I've seen so many situations over the last year, two years, where if people had just bought and self custody Bitcoin, they would have their Bitcoin. One of my sponsors, BlockFi, went to shit. I, I have I have money in BlockFi yeah. tied up in the. I, I so I basically just to, for reference, I I put a little bit of money in a ton of different platforms right. just to like so I know how everything's working. So I have money tied up in the Genesis and Gemini bankruptcy and in the right. BlockFi. Not not a lot, but enough to know what's going on. Um, so I left it in there and I was like, okay, this is going to shit. So can so I curse on you? Yeah. Yeah. You okay. yeah. So it's going to shit. So I was like, I'm going to keep this in here. So I get all the notices. So I actually have like Bloomberg news reporters who would be like, did you get any notices recently? And I'll be like, yeah. And I forward them what I've gotten. But I, I, part of it is Bloomberg initially, when I first, we first started covering this, cryptos, Bitcoin, it was not considered anything. It was like, you can do whatever you want with them. So I was, I had regular recurring buys like a lot of people do. And then obviously in 2020-ish, Bloomberg was like, all right, now if you're going to cover it, I can't buy or sell it. So like, I'm not allowed to do anything with it. So I kind of just have to let it sit where it is or. Yeah, I think, I think, well, I've definitely got something in uh, BlockFi. So, because I, I get the notices as well, but I didn't realize I had something in BlockFi, which is. Uh, you weird. might just get them because you're a customer though, or you were a customer. 
No, I'm, <clears throat> I'm pretty sure the notice is said. Okay. They have something, but maybe you're right. Maybe you're right. But anyway, look, they went to shit. Uh, a lot of things have gone to shit. GPTC is kind of gone to shit, though. I, don't, I would take kind of out of there. It's gone to shit. Yeah, well, it's it's gone, to, but it's um, but it's not gone to shit via like a rug pull. No, correct. Uh, it's gone to shit out of choice because there's a benefit to DCG. My view is the, there's a benefit to G, DCG because of the fees. I mean, I saw the Brad Sherman letter. They could do redemptions. They just don't want to do it because they offer redemptions. So there's a lot of nuance there. So this is a good point to start. So that Brad Sherman letter, yeah. there were two points in there that I thought were fantastic, which I hate saying because this guy is a quack. But that's a we can get into that another time. But there were two points in there that he, he did a really good job questioning. The Reg M question, which I know David Bailey on your podcast recently kind of made it seem like it was unquestionable. They can just offer redemptions without offering um, while they're not offering subscriptions. And it's just easy to get it, which like me, I, I'm not a lawyer, obviously preface everything I've said there. But I, I, I talk to a lot of SEC lawyers, lawyers that launch ETFs, lawyers that launch, work with the 1940 Act and 1933 Act. They're not Reg M experts per se. Um, but like they've all said, no, not a single person said to me it's cut and dry. They can just they can just offer redemptions. Explain what Reg M is so people know. So Reg Regulation M is basically uh, it's it's to try to prevent it's it's anti manipulative practices, right? They don't want people basically offering redemptions and subscriptions at the same time on illiquid stuff because then the people behind it could just like mark it up or mark it down as they're doing redemptions and creations and manipulate the underlying market of different things. So it's basically to prevent any sort of manipulative practices. With Bitcoin, it's almost a relevant to me because there's a spot market. You can see with the prices it trades, but that's not basically how it's seen as law. So for, for, for this conversation, GBC has to comply with Reg M. And they got, they got a cease and desist letter in 2016 or 2014, basically because they were operating redemptions and subscriptions at the same time. The one thing that I think is missing that I, I've talked to some lawyers and no one will give me a straight answer. I've asked multiple people at Grayscale and basically all I've gotten out of them is they, they've heard from their lawyers they cannot operate a redemption program. And I think I found there's rule 102 in Reg M. So like I read through this rule, which I don't know if you've read through any regulatory documents or anything with the U.S. government, but it is, and lawyer speak, it's hard to read. But like there's one area where I'm pretty sure is why GBTC cannot offer redemptions right now. And it's because it trades on an inter-dealer quotation system, or dumb speak for, it trades OTC, it trades over the counter, and there's dealers that hold things and they trade it. And basically, the rule is you can't operate a redemption subscription at the same time, and it can't be trading on an inter-dealer quotation system. So basically, I think what would have to happen in order to operate redemptions without just liquidating outright, which obviously I don't even think anyone really wants, because if you just liquidate outright, Assuming you could get the Bitcoin to everyone, that might be better, but there's a potential they would have to sell a huge chunk of the Bitcoin just to give people their cash back, which you don't want that much selling pressure. But essentially, they would have to delist from the OTC, which I don't fully know that process, and then maybe they could offer redemptions as far as I'm concerned. But again, I'm not a lawyer. That's just my understanding. But what I will say is like getting Reg M relief, that's what it is. You're, you're applying to the SEC to get relief from Regulation M so that you can operate a, a redemption program. And if you've seen or read anything Gary Gensler and the SEC have said on crypto or Bitcoin, like it's not as clear as here, we're applying for a Reg M, give us, give us exemption. It's, I, 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 don't, I don't believe Gary Gensler is going to do that. Like maybe he will. And Sherman had sent that letter. I mean, today is Tuesday. He was supposed to, he asked Gary to give him a response by today. I haven't seen anything that he's responded to yet. Um, but I'm interested to see what he says. 
Um, so there's a lot of people asking these questions. I, the, the one thing I get from every lawyer I talk to is it's not cut and dry. This is a new situation. Like no one really is certain. It's probably going to need to figure it out in the courts potentially. Which is great for DCG because <laughs> they can continue to take their yes. 2%, really 4% fee. Correct. Time being, yeah. Which, um, but yeah, so that look, that shit show, um, all of it has just made me realize like the, the thing we should be promoting is buying and owning self-custody in Bitcoin as much as possible. That said, we have a market. ETFs exist. I can't do anything about people applying for ETFs. And when they arrive, people will use these ETFs. So like, we'll, we'll, we'll work our way through it. But I just wanted you to have the context that I've come to a position that I think, I think, like I think smoking is bad for people, but I can't stop it. <laughs> I think ETFs are bad for Bitcoin. I can't stop it. But uh, anyone who's not like doesn't fully understand what an ETF, just explain what it is. Why they let me let me first give you a counter to your point because okay. I've I've talked with a lot of Bitcoiners about this, um, and the one thing I would say is people are used to using the current system. I view the ETF as a bridge between the current system and the Bitcoin ecosystem or crypto ecosystem, whatever you want to say. But the one way to think about it is in the U.S., just the U.S. alone, registered investment advisors, the people who advise on money, have $25 trillion-ish in assets. I mean, it, those people would much prefer – now there are now systems being created where people can do direct custody. But for the most part, those RAAs, they're people much older than us, both of us. And they are just used to doing things the way they want to do things. And plenty of them out there want to give their clients exposure to crypto, to Bitcoin, what, what have you, some basket of may, maybe cryptocurrencies, whatever it may have you. If just 1% of that money is able to go into something that's clean, cheap, efficient, we know is secured sec st stably somewhere, like that is a good thing. And also a lot of people, if they want access to it, it's it's kind of like dipping your toe in the water. Like once you go into an ETF, it's like the first step kind of thing. Um, just like buying on exchange and then you go to do a custody, self-custody and cold storage, what have you. And the other part of it is like RAAs, they want it into their wheelhouse, right? So usually they charge on the AUM. So if you are a, an investment advisor and your client has $10 million and you want to put $100,000 into Bitcoin for them or $50,000, whatever, whatever it may be, you'd much rather have that under your umbrella that you can charge those fees on. So part of that is not great for at the end of, end of the day, but it's also an incentive for RAs to use it, and it will help, the ETF will help do that. Yeah, I, I guess it comes down to personal opinion on what you see Bitcoin as, where what do you think the role of Bitcoin is in the world, where do you think it's going. Um, I think if you come from a position that you want uncensorable money, yeah, you want to have something which, which is a check and balance on government, which allows people to uh, m uh, send money anywhere in the world, censorship resistant, peer-to-peer, -peer, uh, trustless. Um, if, if you've lost trust in the government and you've lost trust in the dollar, the pound, the yen, the euro, which I think a lot of people have, and you see this as the fight back, then I think an ETF isn't something that you see directly helping. I think if you're somebody who who sees it as an investment class and you want the price to moon, then I can then I can see why an ETF is useful. The the only the only way I think it, the two bridge and that argument is that if you do have an ETF, you've essentially legitimized it even more and you've 
put a product into the market which traditional people can use, and then I think you you put the government in a more difficult position if it wants to uh, continue with operation kind of choke point stuff. Then again, you are potentially creating big pools of Bitcoin that can be confiscated. So there's like there's a lot of nuance to it. I just at the moment I'm falling on that. So so this it's Would funny you say, not care or just um where are you at? I'm I think it's great if you only care about number go up. But if you want like ground up global adoption it's probably not. It's going to price people out quicker. Um I, I don't know we, nobody's ever priced out. Yeah, you de minimis. Yeah, but I mean if if you're hoping that you you want if you want bottom up adoption yeah. it makes it harder or it makes people ac- ac- accumulate less. Yeah, I I think I th- correct me if I'm I'm wrong, but I think what Danny's trying to say is that Bitcoin is a great redistribution of income. Like, brilliant from uh, Michael Saylor, MicroStrategy, if that's successful. <laughs> but if he gets lots of other companies on board, you, you're pushing the gains, you're pushing the early gains to the richest people. We want to push the most gains to the people near the bottom. We yeah. want them to have the opportunity. And so we, we've kind of seen this bottom-up approach work well. You know, if the U.S. chokes Bitcoin... In they're the trying US. to. It yeah, seems like to. they are. But At least they, certain parts of the U.S. government are. But if they do that within the U.S. and <clears throat> smaller countries in South America continue to adopt it, or people in Africa continue to adopt it, or other countries in the world, like poorer and more developing nations, continue to adopt it, what you what you do is that if there's an inevitability to Bitcoin, you've you've closed the the nation to nation wealth gap, and then if we can get it in the hands of you know, normies, we we've essentially closed the wealth. Oh shit! Closed the wealth gap there. Sorry, one second. Okay, it's a glass table. Um, we'll just carry on anyway. Um, so I, I, I just think it. it yeah, I, I'm wrestle. I've wrestled with it a lot. I've gone from yeah, bring the ETF, let's moon this shit to yeah, I'm not sure. But so anyway, it's funny. Gold Goldbugs had a similar situation with uh, with ETFs when people they don't they don't like the fact that they're stored in vaults and like you're not physically holding your own gold. It's kind of a similar situation to cold storage in Bitcoin. This show is brought to you by Iris Energy. Now, Iris Energy is the largest NASDAQ-listed Bitcoin miner using 100% renewable energy. Their strategy is to target markets with low-cost, excess renewable energy, and they build out their own highly efficient Bitcoin data centers. They are led by a seasoned management team with a track record of success across renewables, infrastructure, and digital assets. Now, Danny and I met the team recently in Canada and were super impressed with their values, which align with us. So they are a great fit for what Bitcoin did and you, the listeners. Now, we are going to be working with the Iris Energy team on everything we do from podcasts to films and live events. And they are even sponsoring my football team, Rail Bedford. I'm really, really happy to be working with such a forward-thinking and sustainable Bitcoin company. But if you want to find out more about them, please head over to irisenergy.co, which is I-R-I-S-E-N-E-R-G-Y.co. Next up, we have Ledin. From savings accounts to personal loans and even mortgages, Ledin's financial services enable Bitcoiners to experience the benefits of holding today without selling their Bitcoin. Ledin has a robust risk management strategy which always prioritizes safeguarding clients' assets with no DeFi yield farming. And Ledin only supports Bitcoin and USDC, two of the highest quality and most liquid assets in the industry. They also are dedicated to transparency and are the first digital asset lending company to complete a proof of reserves attestation, which they re-verify every six months. With multilingual support on standby 24-7, Ledin is there to support all your needs. To find out more, please head over to ledin.io, which is L-E-D-N.io. Also, today we have Ledger. 
Now, Ledger is the world leader in Bitcoin security, and it's the best way to own and secure your private keys. If you're still holding Bitcoin on an exchange or with a custodian, it might be the time to take your security more seriously. Remember, not your keys, not your Bitcoin. Now, Ledger hardware wallets paired with the Ledger Live app are the easiest and safest way to start managing your own private keys. You can send and sign your Bitcoin transaction with full transparency in the Ledger Live app. And honestly, look, it could not be easier. I have been a Ledger user since 2017. I love their products. and I'm still using the same hardware device I bought back then. Now, if you want to find out more or purchase a hardware wallet from Ledger, then please head over to shop.ledger.com, which is S-H-O-P dot L-E-D-G-E-R.com. Okay, so um, anyway, position set. Uh, let's explain what an ETF is. So people are- yeah, um, you got you have talked about ETFs a lot. And most people have gotten pretty good, but I feel like there's like a, a base understanding that wasn't fully set in most of your podcast. So if we start from square one, they were invented by a guy named Nate Most. And you've actually talked about this recently in one of your podcasts. Somebody talked about like receipts. So you would give money to like a warehouse and then you could use those receipts to say, I own X, Y, or Z. And they were called commodities warehouses, but he used that logic. So essentially if you had, I don't know, 10 bars of silver or... Um, a bunch of bushels of grain, whatever. You would give it to the warehouse and they would give you a piece of paper that says, we confirm you have this, this is the receipt. And if you ever want, you can go to the warehouse and take that, that commodity out. That's the basis for how an ETF is supposed to work. That piece of paper is worth whatever that commodity is. But he did it to more than just commodities. He, the first one was the S&P 500 ETF. Well, the first ETF was actually in Canada, but it was based off of what was being designed in the US. Anyway, what it really does is it takes those pieces of paper, and if you think of those pieces of paper of a commodity warehouse that I was just talking about, those are essentially the shares of the ETF. And there's custodians that hold the underlying assets. So if you if it's equity, say, say that you would make an index of 10 stocks. The way an ETF works is there's a mechanism where you can create and redeem shares of the ETF because those 10 stocks are equivalent to some number of shares. So for every 10 stocks I hand, I can get, I don't know, we'll say 10 shares of an ETF. So at all times, those 10 stocks, I can trade them in for 10 shares of the ETF, or I can trade in 10 shares of the ETF for 10 shares of the stock. So the way it actually works is it's like 100,000 shares of the ETF and 500 stocks in some proportion for the S&P 500 or whatever the ETF is. But the whole thing is really... I can do an in-kind transaction, which the big benefit is that that's a taxless situation because you're just doing in-kind. You're giving shares for shares, and there's no taxable event that occurs. So that's one of the big reasons why ETFs are so efficient. So if we ever spot Bitcoin ETF, the, the way it would work is you would hand in Bitcoin and you would get some number of shares in return, and that is a t- it's not a taxable event right now. So that's a huge advantage versus what the way usual funds work is. I give you money, that fund goes to buy something, and then I try to return, they have to sell something. Those are both taxable events that have, that have to occur. So the way an ETF works, the, way, the reason why it works so well is because of that creation redemption process that, in that in-kind transaction. The first type of fund was what's called like a closed-end fund. And that's more similar to what GBTC is right now. So a closed-end fund is like, and I'm going to start a company, and instead of doing something like Apple and making electronics, I'm going to invest in other companies. So you have an IPO, and then you invest in bonds or stocks or what have you. The problem with that is there's no mechanism to say the underlying has to be worth X or Y because we know what the underlying is worth, so the shares of this company have to be worth whatever that is because that's all that's involved. 
right? But there's no mechanism to arbitrage that out. It's the same way a company works. A company, its price will fluctuate wildly, but its actual value is indeterminable for the most part. Like you can kind of figure out what it is, but like for a closed end fund, you know, like say it holds those 10 stocks, right? And we know what those 10 stocks are trading at, but the, the closed end fund doesn't have to be trading at that price, right? With an ETF, the, the, it's, we, we, it's a technology, it's a wrapper. It's a very, it's advanced technology to get efficient exposure to anything. No matter what happens with the ETF, when it goes into a market, it democratizes everything. Prices come down to hold it, prices come down to trade it. It's a very good technology in the asset management space. But the reason it works is because of that mechanism I spoke about. Those shares are always going to be equivalent to the underlying because you can always exchange them. If all of a sudden those shares are worth $10 more than the, the, the underlying stocks, I'm going to give you my underlying I'm going to give you the underlying stocks and take the shares back or vice versa, because there's an arbitrage mechanism there, right? So like at any point, if it gets too out of whack, somebody's going to come in and basically say, all right, fine. If this is worth $10 more, I'm going to create more shares, give you the stocks, and I'll take the ETF or vice versa if it's worth $10 less, which is what GBTC is missing, right? You can't hand in the shares and get Bitcoin in return, because if you could, you would be sitting really nice right now. That's the whole problem. Um, so ETFs allow for that, it's called NAV, net asset value is what the underlying value of the holdings are worth. And then the price is the share price. With an ETF, the NAV and the price are almost always going to be very close in line. There are instances where that doesn't happen. And usually it's problems in the underlying market, which we don't need to get into. But for the most part, that creation redemption mechanism, like my boss likes to call it the flux capacitor. Like that's how everything actually works in the ETF world. It's a, it's a tax, it's a non-taxable event and they make sure that NAV and price are always in line. Now, normally it's not people like, oh, this is deviated a little bit. I'm going to go hand in the shares and do this. Mostly it's just part of day-to-day -day trading. There's people trading, there's authorized participants. There's people out there just making markets in the ETF and it keeps things in line. But there are times where if things get really out of whack, somebody will come in and be like, there's an opportunity here to make, I don't know, three basis points. And if I can do that on a million dollars, that's a decent amount of money in one trade. Okay. So they're basically super efficient markets. Yeah. So like the way to think about it is like a stock, right? You have a fixed supply of shares for the most part. Obviously companies issue and buy back shares, whatever, but like demand is what drives the price, right? As demand goes up, the price is going to go up because the supply is fixed, right? With an ETF, when demand goes up or goes down, you can change the supply. So you are moving the supply, not you, but the market itself and authorized participants, market makers, Wall Street, if you will, are making sure that supply is always in line with demand. So if you just think about it as two bars, basically it's just the market constantly moving that supply bar up and down to keep in line so that NAV and price are the same, which again is what's missing from GBTC. And you can also quite, create some quite exotic products with them, baskets of, you know, you could, like I say, you could, I, I want to invest say, in Bitcoin miners, public Bitcoin miners. You know, to save me having to go out to every single miner and buy shares, you could just create a basket of all public Bitcoin miners. You can hedge yourself. If you think, right, I think certainly Bitcoin miners are going to be uh, super successful over the next five years. I don't want to have to pick a winner. I don't want to have to spend time studying each of them, but I know the market's definitely going to grow. Someone can create an ETF for that. Yeah, there are. There's a bunch of ETFs out there that do that. And honestly, it's not even that they have to be super, super successful. There's plenty of ETFs out there on things that they people expect to fail. And basically, they'll they'll people they'll use it. So ETFs are were initially inve invented to be trading vehicles. So like people can short them. You can buy options on them. You can do anything you want on the underlying market, which we, we can get into. Is there anything you can't put put into an ETF? 
there's some nuances. Basically, there needs to be an underlying liquid market. So okay. the way an ETF works is like if you think about it when you're trying to see how much does it trade. So if you're an institution, you care how much it trades. For an ETF, it's not as critical as, as much how much it trades because if the underlying trades enough, like I said, you can always exchange those shares. So a market maker, somebody who's doing making markets in these ETFs, if the underlying market, if it's a it's an ETF, it only trades 100 shares a day, but its underlying stocks that it holds are the S&P 500, a market maker can ARB that all day. They can make, they can give you a thousand, like a million shares in, in a second without any issue because the underlying market is what makes the ETF liquid. So there are instances where the ETF becomes more liquid than the underlying. We call those pseudo future ETFs. They're like just super high-powered trading vehicles. Most of them have been around since like 2000 or earlier. Um, so, but for the most part, the, the real liquidity, we, we call it the primary liquidity is like the secondary layer that what is held in that basket and you can hold bonds, commodities, ETFs, futures, derivatives, and they've made rules over the past few years to make it easier to do these things. And can you have ETFs, which back up, uh, uh, like a basket of multiple ETFs? Yes, you can. Yeah. So there are ETFs. So like iShares, for example, has a bunch of ETFs where they'll hold their underlying ETF and then do a currency hedge on it. So like, say you want, I don't know. UK exposure, but you want to hedge the British pound exposure. So they'll, they'll hold their UK ETF and then they'll offer a hedged UK version where it just literally holds the ETF. And then there's also a bunch of issuers where they're like, all right, we're going to actively manage our ETFs and rotate through these different sectors, what have you. Um, there's all, you can do a lot of, it's, it's a technology. It's a yeah. wrapper. That's the way to think about it. Just, you, just quickly going back one second. Um, in the Michael Sunashin interview, um, we asked that if he allowed with that, uh, redemptions, would it bring the discount back to par? And he said he didn't think it would necessarily. Is that just wrong? Um, so I, the problem is, like, my big thing is, like, if we just allow redemptions and we don't allow subscriptions, we're make GBTC's broken in the opposite direction, which I is see. basically what happened. Like, we, should we just get into the history of GBTC? Well, let me ask one more question before we get into that then. Okay. Do you remember the Cullen Roche interview? Yeah, but Cullen's great. Cullen is great. So you remember he talked about that his investment uh, thesis is, he was like, I'm like a third equities, a third gold. He has a ZT. He has an ETF. I was going to say. does this. There's was, an ETF that was, does this. I was going to say, you kind of want a hard, hard assets ETF, which mm. is a bit gold, a bit Bitcoin. Bit, I assume property. they exist today, apart yeah. from with Bitcoin. They that do. Bitcoin. You want one with Bitcoin in as well. So, like, you know that set thing where I've like, I, I want a little bit of gold just in case, you know. And that I, I feel like if there was a hard assets ETF, I would, I would be interested in that. Yeah. So right now, the only way to do that would be just with Bitcoin futures, which isn't really what most people really want. And, and sorry, before we get into the history of the GPTC thing, um, can anyone invest in ETFs or does it have to anyone? Be? If, if you, it's just like buying a stock. So if it's an ETF. For the most part, you can just go onto your whatever brokerage trading platform and you can just type in the ticker and buy it. Okay, interesting. Do you trade them? Are you allowed to trade I'm not them? allowed to. I, I, I hold them in my portfolio. Ironically, like in, in my – so I work in Bloomberg Intelligence, which is Bloomberg's research arm. Um, so in, in my department, for the most part, people, they're sell-side researchers, buy-side researchers. They, basically, they write research on the street for the most part and they came to Bloomberg and now they do the same thing. But it's not buy or sell side research. If you have a Bloomberg terminal, you have access to everyone in my department's work. Ironically, if you cover like healthcare or auto 
automobiles or whatever it may be. Like for the most part, you just have to worry about names in your sector to get requests to buy, but you can just buy any ETF you want because ETFs are exempt from everything for the most part, except for me because I cover ETFs. So no matter what I buy, I have to get approval or I can't buy it. But okay, but you can buy things outside of ETFs. Uh, I have to get a approval, but yes, yeah. Huh. Annoying. Yeah. All right, let's get into the history GBTC then. Yeah. So GBTC was like the first way you could get access on the traditional financial rails, right? I think it, I don't even, 2015 is when it launched. I think that's about right. So it, it launched as what, it, it basically launched as a hedge fund. So it, right, the only way to get access still, even if you wanted to create shares back when it was open for creations, was a private placement, which basically it's like a PE fund, hedge fund. It's a private vehicle. You have to be an accredited investor or qualified purchaser to create shares, to buy in, just like a hedge fund. So an AI, accredited, we call them AIQP. Um, AI, you have to have like a million investable assets outside of your home. QP is 5 million or make $200,000 for the past two years. But those have been the rules for like ever and they haven't changed with inflation, which is good in my opinion. I think some of the AI QP rules are, are dumb because they don't let people get access to certain things. But Yeah, I mean, they seem to be arbitrarily unfair. Yes. Yeah. It's like if you're rich, you can invest in these things. But it, uh, to be fair, they don't, the, those funds that are in there, they're not subject to, we'll, we'll get into 1940 Act, 1933 Act. They're not subject to all the stuff that Gary Gensler wants so Bitcoin and crypto and these crypto exchanges to be subject to, right? There's a lot of disclosure and agreements. So the hedge funds kind of operate and they're not allowed to market, they're not allowed to do these things. Um, but that's the way GBTC was initially launched. So, so first it launches that. It's just a private trust. I actually added it to the Bloomberg terminal uh, when it launched as a, as a hedge fund. Um, so basically, I, I say hedge fund. It was always a grantor trust, but I'm just referring to it as that because it, you had to have a private placement. It's called like the the document for it was called it's called a PPM private placement memorandum. So you invest in that. That's how you go in. You have to be an ARQP. For the most part, people were hand delivering them Bitcoin and getting shares of GBTC in return. Um, and then they listed it on um, the OTC, the over-the-counter markets, under Rule 144. So basically, that's when GBTC started trading. And it was trading at a couple hundred percent premium, a hundred some odd percent premium. And the way it worked initially, which people in your podcast have gotten into, you put in, say, I give them 10 Bitcoin, I get the equivalent amount of GBTC back, and I'm locked up for 12 months, right? So I, I'm, I sit there for 12 months, I'm locked up, I can't do anything. And I, after 12 months, then I get my shares to my brokerage account and I can do what I want with them. I can hold them, I can sell them. But if you were handing in 10 Bitcoin and you waited 12 months and then Bitcoin has gone up and GBTC is trading at 120% premium, 100% premium. So if Bitcoin's $10,000, you're selling your GBTC at an equivalent of $20,000 back in 2017 or 2016 before like anything really crazy happened. So that's what people were doing. So a lot of the demand came from people Handing GBT, handing Bitcoin over, getting GBTC shares, and trying to take advantage of that premium, right? So they were going in, and and what what I think David Bailey kind of missed is like I work at Bloomberg, so all of the most of our clients are high high net worth or work in institutions or they deal with this stuff. The people I talked to that were doing this, it was a lot of PE funds, a lot of hedge funds. Like they saw that premium and they were like, "I'm going to arbit." 
So people went in there, they put in billions of dollars. Like I know a lot of clients who were doing this and like, they don't care about Bitcoin. They don't care about crypto. They saw this ARB opportunity and they were pouring money in. And it, honestly, it was at the disadvantage of retail investors because the only way a retail investor could get access to GBTC was buying it on the exchange at that 100% premium, 70% premium, whatever, whatever it was. You had to buy it at a premium. So people who were accredited investors, institutions, were able to put, put their Bitcoin in. A lot of them then shorted Bitcoin in the futures market or whatever, whatever avenue they had. So they were basically only long that premium. So all of a sudden, once their shares unlock, they get out of the short, they buy Bitcoin, and then they sell GBTC. So Great trade. Yeah. So people made a ton of money until it unwound. And in ETHE, which I know isn't what we're here to talk about, but that was a perfect example. The, the one step I did miss is these products become SEC reporting companies. J Grayscale did this on purpose. because, And also from the get-go, since I started covering them, their goal was, their stated goal was to launch crypto Bitcoin ETFs. Like that's what they wanted to do. Like from the very get-go, this was the process. And the reason they launched it as a grantor trust, so I talked about those gold ETFs, all those gold ETFs, their underlying structure, the legal structure behind them, they're also grantor trust. It's not just like a misconception that they launched these things as grantor trust. They launched them because it's a tried and true accepted measure to have an underlying structure of grantor trust to launch an ETF that holds some physical assets. And I'm putting physical in quotes for those just listening on audio. Okay, fine. Do you think any of this is the reason why the Bitcoin price ended up becoming correlated so much with traditional markets? Um, that's a complex question. I, I part of it maybe I think more it's I'm 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 in agreement with the mostly consensus that a lot of people that were buying Bitcoin were also huge tech investors or in the tech world. Um, so like a lot of the correlation was really to the tech area. Like if you look at the Dow, which holds a lot of industrial type stuff, like the correlation isn't as strong. And also the correlation is broke down. Also like in markets where there's tons of money printing, like any assets, risk assets, which I know you. Most people in the Bitcoin world don't consider Bitcoin a risk asset, but in the, well, of course it fucking is. Okay. It's a risk asset. So when it's risk on, all risk as on assets tend to go up at the same time. Yeah. I mean, look, the people who are saying it's not a risk asset are talking narrative because they say, well, the dollars are risk, but it's, it's a risk asset. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's like one Bitcoin is always one Bitcoin, but it, it, yeah, it trades like a risk asset for sure. Yeah, exactly. Um, but I did want to talk about ETH for yeah, a good example. That? So that's, Grayscale's Ethereum one, which okay. shitcoin, if you want to call it that, we right? Do. So I wrote about this. So like, w when you become an SEC reporting company, you can lower that twelve month lockup to six month lockup. And ETHE was a mess. So in December of twenty twenty, I wrote about. So basically, what happened is everyone's creating shares, and I can see the flows. I can see the shares increasing on a daily basis for these products. I know what's happening. What happened is when ETHE became an SEC reporting company, they filed. The SEC allowed it. And then there's this time period where everyone who had filed from six months ago to 12 months ago, all that became unlocked at the same time. So like if you look at ETHE and the Ethereum price, and I'm convinced of this, I wrote a note, I, you, I can pull up my, my Twitter thread, basically saying like, this is a massive unlocking of ETH shares, and it's going to send the premium, which was around 100% of ETHE, down cratering. And like, I can't tell you how many, any time, even back in 2017, when I was tweeting about GBTC, how the premium was going to collapse, FUD, 
don't know what you're talking about, suit, all these things. And I'm like, just know what you're investing in. Like this thing is trading at a massive premium and people would comment and they'd be like, it's only going to go up. We're going to see a 300% premium here. Um, but yeah, ETHE back in December, 2020, basically what happened is it changed from 12-month lockup to six-month lockup. So anyone beyond who created shares before six months ago at that time got their shares like on the same day. And what happened is all those people, so I actually had clients who read my report and were like, oh God, I got to get my shares out. And they got lucky because they were short Ethereum and long ETHE because it was 100% premium because that was the arb trade. It wasn't just the GPTC one. That was the biggest. But what happened is everyone was unlocking their short ETH at the same time. So ETH went through the roof. If you look at the price of ETH from into 2020 into, early, into January 2021, I'm convinced that that was the main reason because people were getting out of their short positions, which means you have to buy ETH, and they were getting rid of their, their ETHE. So if you, a lot of people who were on that ARB trade got rocked. I had multiple clients who actually reached out to me and said they saved like a ton of money by getting out after reading my piece because you were the trade went against you in two directions, which is the same thing that happened with GBTC in when GBTC started going into a discount. Right. So what what do you make of the whole GBTC situation? How much can you actually talk about? You can you be completely open with your opinions. Are you? Yeah, limited? I can be. I can be completely open with my opinions. Okay. So you you listened to my interview with uh, Sunshine. Yeah, yeah, yeah. What do you think? Um, ah. I thought you were a tad harsh, but he also should have admitted that Genesis like screwed up by putting all their money with three arrows and like like they obviously Genesis screwed up. But again, he, his opinion is like I don't deal with them, which obviously he does in some way. Um, but it really wasn't in his purview. Um, and the other thing is like you, you know he was the signatory. Yeah. Oh on yeah. The yeah. Loans. Yeah, yeah. 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 So there there's some culpability there, and he should have said he feels bad. For like everyone there, but like that's as far as I would say. I guess I would go. But like, where do you think I was harsh? Uh, be honest. Yeah, I actually I did. I haven't. I listened to it when it launched, which was a month ago. I so, mean, I guess I called him a liar. Yeah. So I I so the problem is like I don't know like the the main thing. So with ETFs, when I cover ETFs, everything's out in the open. It's fully transparent. I can see yeah. every document. I can see daily holdings. I can see shares. With this DCG Genesis grayscale situation like i don't have we don't i don't have any special information like i don't know exactly what the relationship was i can't see what money was moving i have to wait for the the quarterly filings what have you which we can get into um about what happened but like i i don't know and obviously grayscale everyone should be pissed if you're a i'm a great i i bought gbtc in 2016 i think in my ira because it was the only way at the time to get access to it now i'm not allowed to trade it like i said but like i still hold it and i'm not happy with what's going on here so i'm a little biased um maybe not as biased as david bailey is or biased as sun and shine but i i said this before we start recording I, I probably sit somewhere in the middle of the two of them that when you've covered this topic so what do you think is going to happen with them and do you believe they genuinely want an etf so I do believe they genuinely want an ETF. But do you think they want an ETF but hope it's maybe in two, three years? Maybe. I don't. I, I, so obviously this is their only, this is where they're getting most of their cash right now, right? I mean, what yeah, is I think it? You should explain that for people that didn't listen to the David Bailey one, why they might not want to be. So look, they, I mean, what, what's in the trust? How much is in there? How much Bitcoin? 600 some odd thousand, over 3% of the supply. Okay. And they're making four. Hundred-ish million, based on the current price. Uh, no, uh, it's a little, yeah, something like that. I mean, back in, I, I doesn't yeah, matter, but, but yeah, four, somewhere around there, they're making a lot of money. Four hundred million is a good revenue line for a company that probably employs not a lot of people, and so four hundred million is great. What a great revenue line! Now, if Bitcoin 
I mean, we did an interview yesterday with, uh, do you know Rational Root, the carrot on Twitter? No, I don't. Brilliant. Jim, he has these brilliant charts. Ah, so he, he has this one chart. I'm going to try and draw it for you. But basically, you have the issuance. No, th this is your uh, liquid supply of Bitcoin, right? Mm -hmm. And then you have your issuance rate. Okay. So that's that's your that's your sorry. This is your illiquid supply. This is your Bitcoin that people got locked up and stuff. This is your trading supply. And what happens with each halving? Yeah, it goes okay, down. It goes down. Step function. But but the amount that's actually being held locked up is growing at a slower rate than the issuance. But we hit an what was the inflection point, which was last the last, last halving. halving. Yeah. And so they're kind of growing about the same. But with the next halving, and so what this essentially becomes your S curve. So you get to this point here over the next kind of two halvings where the liquid tradable supply is a lot lower. Yeah. So over the next four, eight years, if there's a growing interest in Bitcoin and a growing adoption, an increasing illiquid supply and a shrinking liquid supply, there's only one thing that can happen to the price of Bitcoin. So if Bitcoin goes to 100K, that 400 million a year becomes 1.2 billion. If it goes to 200K, it becomes 2.5 billion. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So you just have to rationally ask. If you look at the money they would make in the ETF versus what they make in the trust, where are they going to make most of their money? So sure, maybe they want an ETF. But at the moment, there's a lot. There's a there's a lot. Yeah. Of, there's, there's billions of reasons why they don't want it to happen. So th there's a few things I would say. One, my biggest yeah. criticism for them is I thought they should have lowered the fee. Once once you get to economies of scale, I think they should have lowered the fee. The that said, no no court is going to make them lower the fee. Like if you look over in Europe, the first ETNs are still trading. They charge two and a half percent. There's a bunch of ETFs that charge two percent. Like they're not like it's not like they're all, off out of left field. That said, there are Bitcoin futures ETFs in the U.S. that are trading seventy nine basis points and lower. Basis points is uh, 0.01%, basically. So less than 1% fee. Um, but fees add up over time. Like they really eat into your return. Um, but obviously, they're, they're saying they're using it. Their, their defenses are going to use it to fight the SEC. And they really are fighting the SEC. And I'm, uh, I think they're going to win their lawsuit um, against the SEC for an APA violation. Okay, let's get into that. What's an APA violation? So basically, it says... Um, Administrative Procedures Act, and basically it says any any uh, government entity, regulator, whatever, has to treat like situations alike. I'm dumbing it down, but it, like Bitcoin futures ETFs, spot Bitcoin ETFs, and basically Grayscale's argument is you're allowing Bitcoin futures ETFs, but your reasoning makes no sense. Like you can't you can't do one without the other. Which I I've been saying since they've been denying spot and approving futures because like. The futures market and the spot market are inextricably linked. Like they go hand in hand. You can't have one without the other. Anyone who knows anything about derivatives markets knows that's how it works. So the idea that like you can manipulate spot and it wouldn't affect futures or vice versa, like, is just insane to me. So I, we saw the. I listened to the hearing. We thought that they had one judge in their hands. Grayscale, I'm saying. So I have we have a, I have a crew of people I work with on this. So we have people who cover. Uh, exchange companies that cover crypto. We have people who do what, what I have, whatever on that side. I have people covering uh, cryptos as a commodity. Um, I, have, I have a crypto analyst who covers a lot of the on-chain metrics who's based in Australia, actually. And then I also, what we have a litigation analyst who's, he used to be a lawyer and he covers this stuff. So he's covered the Ripple lawsuit. He's covering this lawsuit. And initially going in, we were like, all right, they got this one judge who's a Democrat leaning and like 
he's likely going to be on their side. There's this other judge that they could possibly get, and this third judge that there's probably no way they're going to get. And listening to the hearing, which you can't you can't base everything off of that. It's just their line of questioning. But like we went from his view was like Grayscale is a forty percent chance, which. Everyone I was talking to was like, this is a frivolous lawsuit. It's going to get thrown out. Grayscale has a powerhouse litigation team behind them filing this lawsuit. This is not like some like nobody doing this, right? Which I think he mentioned on his his podcast. But How brave he was. <laughs> I mean, yeah, that was a little strong. But I, 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 suing your regulator is a big step. Like, you gotta, like they are an asset manager. They have to deal with the SEC no matter what they do going forward. So going out and suing them in federal court is definitely like – there's a give and take that usually happens with these regulators. So like going out and suing them in federal court isn't like the most, the smartest business move, but they're kind of out of moves in my opinion. Uh, I forgot where I was going with that. The judges. Oh, the judges. So we listened to it. And then the second judge came in and it was just hammering the SEC lawyer. Like, and we were like, okay, well they got two. They might, they're probably going to win this now. Like within like the first 15 minutes, I was live tweeting it actually. I was like, this is crazy. Is the three judges total? It's three, it's a three judge panel. And then the third judge came in and that we thought was no shot, started asking hard questions of the SEC that like were in line with our thinking. So we're like, okay. The downside is, so my, our base case, so he's flipped from 40% chance Grayscale win to 70% chance of Grayscale win after that or the oral arguments as they're called, which we should get sometime. It could happen before June, the end of June but likely 2Q, 3Q, and we should get the Ripple case, which is irrelevant to you. But yeah, I'm, 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 I kind of view them as, view it as a security. But I, at this point, I just, anyone, any wins against the SEC, I'm, I'm all for. Oh, listen, <laughs> I, can, I can hate Ripple and XRP and want them to beat the SEC at the same time. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, that's where I sit Fuck right now the for the most part. Um, Apart from Hester Purse, we like Hester. Yeah, yeah Hester's great. Yeah. She is awesome. Um, it, it's really Gary. It's mo- it's mostly Gary Gensler, to be very clear. Yeah, I want Hester to get Gary's job. Yeah. Um, but and, but so now it's like we, we think 70% chance. The problem here is that the SEC, I mean, not the SEC, the judges might issue a ruling that says like you violated the APA. Like you did not treat like situations alike and then say go back to the drawing board. And then the SEC could then just deny for other reasons, right? Which I think is my base case of what's likely going to happen. So Grayscale might win the case and then still not be able to convert to an ETF. This show is brought to you by my new sponsor, Unchained. Now, if you've been listening to my show for a while, you'll know I'm a big fan of saving Bitcoin for the long term. I'm a hodler, which is why I'm happy to recommend the Unchained IRA. Their Bitcoin IRA lets you control the keys to your tax advantage Bitcoin And if you have a Roth IRA, that means you don't pay capital gains on the price appreciation. Now, unfortunately, most IRA providers require that you give up control of your Bitcoin, but not with Unchained. Controlling your keys with the Unchained IRA protects you from exchange hacks or frozen accounts, and Unchained is an all-in-one solution. They'll help you establish a traditional or Roth IRA, set up your cold storage vault, roll over your existing 401k or IRA, and if you want one-on-one guidance, Their concierge team will send you devices and walk you through setting up and securing your keys at your own pace. If you want to set up your IRA today, head over to unchained.com forward slash what Bitcoin did or schedule a complimentary consultation to learn more. That is unchained.com forward slash what Bitcoin did, which is U-N-C-H-A-I-N-E-D dot com forward slash what Bitcoin did. And if you want to get $50 off, please use the promo code what Bitcoin did at the checkout. Next up today, we have Wasabi, who I am using to keep my Bitcoin private. Now, Wasabi is the easiest way to send and receive Bitcoin privately, 
And even for non-technical people like me, it is effortless and provides privacy by default. Now with Wasabi, there is no minimum amount, so you can get started coin joining straight away. And Wasabi users make coin join transactions together with BTC Pay and Trezor users, and BTC Pay server users can make payments in CoinJoin, which saves on fees and is a privacy improvement. Also, Wasabi have just dropped a new feature. Now, Trezor Suite users can make coin joins directly on the hardware wallet, which is obviously very cool. Now, if you want to find out more, please head over to wasabiwallet.io, which is W-A-S-A-B-I-W-A-L-L-E-T.io. Also, today we have BitCasino. Now, BitCasino was established in 2013 and is the world's first licensed Bitcoin casino. It is trusted by tens of thousands of players worldwide, and not only do they have cutting-edge security, but they offer fast withdrawals and VIP experiences that money can't buy. BitCasino also has over 2,800 games and tournaments to try out, and with 24-7 live chat support, you can always get the help you need. To find out more, please head over to bitcasino.io, the first Bitcoin casino to win an EGR award. That is bitcasino.io, which is B-I-T-C-A-S-I-N-O dot I-O. And please remember to gamble responsibly. Why do you think the SEC is doing this? <laughs> Gary. And why do you think Gary's doing this? Gary wants more power. But what, what actual power is this? Is this so, post-SEC so job? I'll give you a little background on, on Gensler. <coughs> Gensler. I mean, he, he's a shit one himself. What was he promoting? I don't know. So when he was at the CFTC, I've talked to people. He was like a crypto evangelical person yeah. to the SEC back in the day. Well, so people he was pushing, were really excited when he came in because of the talks he did was at MIT. Including and, me. Yeah. I listened to hours of his classes to yeah. like, all right, this guy, I learned stuff from him about, about how some blockchain works. And the, and the CFTC always seemed a bit more open to this. I mean, Brian Quintens was great. Who was the other guy? The, the Giancarlo? Yeah, Giancarlo. Yeah. I've got this great photo of me. I went to the CFTC uh, to interview Brian. I've got a great photo of me in front of the big plaque. It's me, Brian, uh, Brian Quintens. Uh, what's, his, what's his name? Giancarlo. Giancarlo. Giancarlo in a motorhead shirt. In <laughs> front awesome. of it. I've got to show you. That's awesome. Um, but they were when I met both of them, they are brilliant. Yeah. They're totally pro-Bitcoin. Yeah. It's funny. You talk, so like, this is going to get a little off topic, but I, people like, I was shocked. So like anyone who's talked to the SEC, most of the, the, I don't want to say the underlings, but the, the people you don't see giving press conferences, like when you talk to them, they know what's going on. Like people on Twitter were like, oh, the SEC doesn't understand this. And then like, I'm getting, I've had, a, I had calls with them. Like we had calls about ETFs and we're like, can we ask about what's going on with Bitcoin? And obviously I have a conversation and like, they know what's going on. They're not completely oblivious. It's mostly coming, right now it's coming from top down from Gary. And Gary wants to be Secretary uh, of Treasury. That's his ultimate goal. Um, and he's basically tied himself in with the left wing of the Democratic Party. Think Elizabeth Warren types. Um, so he needs them to be on his side if he ever wants to be Treasury Secretary. So he's tied in with them now. Has he actually said he wants to be Treasury Secretary? It's an open secret, but it's. Right. But I've heard from more than enough people that know him that that's his ultimate goal. Um, well, and then what happens when Trump wins the next election? Well, it's funny. He was actually, I, th I think he was the CFO of Hillary Clinton's campaign for 2016. And he was in line to become Treasury Secretary. Like if Clinton won, he was probably going to be Treasury Secretary. We, we wouldn't have him as chairman of the SEC right now. Um, so that he lost there and then he went to MIT and now he's back and he's chairman of the SEC. See, this is where it's absolute fucking bullshit. Because this is, I mean, it's just basic Career, he's putting his entire career above what is best for the people of America. 
That's he would disagree with you, but of course he uh, yeah, will. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, of course he will. But you've seen the MIT classes. We yeah. have. He was very. Everyone used to talk about Gary Gensler's bags. You know, yeah, Gary Gensler's bags to the moon, and yet right now. He doesn't seem to be doing much. It's almost like he's trying to just delay, delay, well, delaying his attack. That's he's trying. What he's doing, he's ruling. He's regulating through enforcement rather than regulating through like dialogue with the market, which is you'll hear from everyone. And what he wants to do is get more power at the SEC. That's what he did at the CFTC when he were he was chairman of the CFTC. So this is fun fact: they weren't unionized until he became the chairman of the CFTC. So the the people who work at the CFTC unionized underneath him because of how hard he was working them. Uh, so he's doing the same thing to people at the SEC. There's people leaving the SEC left and right because of him. Um, he's hard to work for, basically, is the gist I've gotten from anyone I've I've spoken to. And what what kind of uh, checks and balances are in for somebody in that role? It's the courts, which he's going to the courts to do. So basically, one of his tactics is it, you'll see this. He'll he'll put out he'll put out these. Uh, applications or like notes for comment on like what he wants to do, rule changes, what have you. And he'll often put like one or two things in there that are just like absurd and has everyone up in arms. But really there's like a third or fourth thing in there that also is a little bit extenuous. But then he comes back later on after dialogues and comments and it's like, we're taking this out. And then everyone kind of forgets about this other thing that he slipped in there in some different way. Um, so he's very, he's, he's a textbook politician. Like he's a Snake. politician through and through. Like, that is what this guy is. So he does a lot of different things like that. Um, He's a fucking snake, man. Yeah. Um, okay. So, and just so people understand the US uh, political structure here. So he is a part of the Biden administration in that role. If if Trump was to win the next election, all those roles, the heads of all those uh, institutions changes, right? Theoretically, yeah, he could ask for them to like. I, I, so I'm not an expert on this. I, I don't know 100%, but I believe that's correct. And he could make, they could, he could keep them on, or he could ask them to resign essentially, and then put put somebody else in their place. Yeah, I'm pretty sure when I was uh, the SEC, I actually saw the Hester Persing in her office where it was her being appointed by Donald Trump. I'm pretty sure. I, I think I think that's what it is. That goes back to that Michael Lewis fifth wrist thing where you bring in, yeah, they bring in exactly, own, they bring in their own team. Okay, so. Uh, Okay, so Gensler's basically playing power games, they're stopping all this. Okay, so just say they lose the lawsuit, and if the judges are tough enough, they might be forced to allow it? Theoretically, or what could happen, which is a fringe case, which has been discussed on different, it's been discussed on Twitter and through different people. The main hinge thing that this hinges on is you allowed futures ETF because the one thing that the SEC continually says they want, I think like the last denial of the GBC, there was like 88 references to the term surveillance sharing agreements. Like they want, basically they want NYSE to have surveillance sharing agreements with, or New York Stock Exchange or NASDAQ, wherever it lists, with an underlying exchange, a couple exchanges, a market of significant size. So like think, uh, Binance, Gemini, Coinbase, like surveillance sharing agreements. Was the, every single microsecond of trade that like that they can see to like look for manipulation. That's what the SEC wants. So then they can go to NYSE, who's regulated with them, and see it. Or they want those underlying exchanges to come on board and become exchanges themselves so that they're also regulated. So it's either surveillance sharing agreements, give us all your data, or come in and become fully regulated with the SEC. And but so basically they approve futures ETFs because the CME where the Bitcoin futures trade is a regulated market. So the SEC was like, all right, this is regulated. To, to be 
I want to. I'm going to toot my own horn a little bit here. We got shit on in, when we said that this these were going to get approved. We stuck our necks out in August because basically in late July, Gary gave a speech, and like a couple lines in the speech, he was like, "We look forward to 1940 Act applications of Bitcoin futures products." And like, we, basically, all you have to do right now is listen to what Gary Gensler says because he what he says is what he does. Like everything else, kind of like matters, but it's like a, it, it's moved down in the totem pole. And that's why we got it right that Bitcoin futures ETFs were going to be approved when they were approved. And most other people were incorrect, even though they told us we were going to be wrong. So that's what, that's when I got like all of my followings because I was aggressive in saying we thought it was going to get approved. And that's when most people followed me. But all of this hinges on the fact that Bitcoin futures ETFs were approved. There's a non-zero percent chance that Gensler could go back and say, all right, then we're just going to delist Bitcoin futures ETFs, which then would open another APA violation and lawsuit and go in the courts because the issuers are like, you can't just approve and then disapprove. But there's some talk of that happening. I don't think it's going to happen, but that's another outcome there. Um, but that, like I said, I think the most common outcome is the judges say, you violated the APA, go back to the drawing board either approve or deny for a different reason, and then they're going to deny them, possibly. for they, They've done all the stuff with custodians, regulated custodians. I think they might lean on that a little bit. I'm not really sure. Okay, just say they do allow it through the judges. They are forced to allow this. Um, uh, how quickly can the GBTC Trust become an ETF? And also, what positions does this put all the other applications in? The Valkyrie, the Winklevoss one? Because there's lots of applications, but really, first to market is what you want. Yeah, so that's a good question. We kind of have to get into the 33 Act versus the 40 Act to answer that question. So there is this new rule called the ETF rule filed in 2019. And basically, if you're a 1940 Act ETF, you file, and then after 75 days, you can launch. It, make, it basically makes launching an ETF easier. 1940 Act has additional protections. Basically, it was created afterwards with more protection. You need a board. You need X, Y, Z. 1933 Act ETFs, which is what the gold ETFs are, what spot Bitcoin ETFs can only be, um, they don't have all the same stuff. But it's really just it's it's a very minute differences. Like for the most part, 99.9% of the time, it doesn't really make that much of a difference. But for futures ETFs, they can be either 40 Act or 33 Act. 33, you can use a little more leverage to be more, a little bit more efficient. But it's basically because treasuries can either be cash or a security as far as the SEC and regulation is work because that's just you can basically file it as other cash or as security. And if you file it as security, then it's a diversified investment. So basically, if you use treasuries as your security, you can file as a 40 act. That means 75 days after you file, unless the SEC comes in and says, withdraw, you can't do this, we won't allow it, you just launch. The other option, which is the only way to launch a spot Bitcoin ETF, which is the way that like all the gold ETFs, a lot of other ETFs are launched is under the 33 Act. And they have to go through this process called the 19B4, which is where you see all those has been disapproved, has been disapproved, um, which is whatever. Um, so they, they go through this process and it's like a 240-ish day process from filing and they they extend, they extend, whatever. So they either accept right away after 40, I don't know exactly what the days are, but it's 240 total and there's like five steps in between or four steps in between. And they either extend or approve. And then at the end of 240, they either approve or deny, and then they deny. The only active application right now for spot Bitcoin ETF is ARK, Kathy Wood's ARK and 21 shares, which launched a bunch of ETFs in Europe. So they have a ton of crypto ETFs across, across Europe, primarily in Switzerland. Um, so they just filed not that long ago. Um, so that's the only active spot Bitcoin application. There are There is a 33-act ETF, which was critical in the lawsuit that Grayscale brought against the SEC. I, I, I don't know if I'm getting, I don't want to get too in the weeds here, but essentially 
the first spot Bitcoin ETS were approved, and basically they leaned on the fact that it was a 40-act product instead of a 33. But then there were already filings for a 33-act Bitcoin futures ETF that came due in March of 2022. So they, the, the SEC basically was forced to approve that because like, what were they going to say? Oh, one's a 40-act, one's a 33-act. So they approved the futures ETF under the 33-act. Basically, it's all these issuers whittling away at all these different reasons for them denying. So they're now, so Tukrium was the one that filed that and they ended up selling it to a company called Hashdex, who's, they're in the US, but primarily in Brazil. And they bought that ETF. So now there's a 33-act Bitcoin futures ETF, DeFi, Theoretically, they could alter things, and if if they allow for spot Bitcoin ETFs, that might be the first spot Bitcoin ETF because it's already a 33 act, and so that theoretically they could alter things in their prospectus. I'm not 100% certain of that, but I think they could alter it to, to buy spot Bitcoin. Um, but uh, I, I don't know how long it would take. It could take months. It could take weeks. I would guess months if they get approved and they convert it to an ETF. Honestly, the best thing for everyone involved, in my opinion, would be for ETF approval. You don't want them forced liquidation because then they're going to have to sell a ton of Bitcoin. Nobody um, wants that. You don't want them to stay where they are. You, w- ETF approval is best for everyone. Just Bitcoin holders directly, uh, GBTC holders. It's just a more efficient vehicle for anyone who wants to trade these things. Right now, everyone's trading the Bitcoin futures ETFs if you want to trade on traditional financial markets. Um, so yeah, the, the best situation would be for them to convert to an ETF, but I don't see it happening anytime soon. But back to my point though, you want to be the first ETF, right? Because that becomes the most liquid market? For the most part. Um, so we saw in Canada, one ETF launched one day before the others, right? So this, this ETF launched, it's, it's the purpose BTCC launched in Canada. It launched literally one day before all the other ones. It's spot Bitcoin ETF up there. And it's, it dwarfs everything else for the most part in trading volume. It dwarfs in assets, but a, there's a lot of assets in some other ones, but they don't trade anywhere near as much. So one day advantage is critical. We were of the opinion that you should just allow like a bunch of these to line up at the starting line and go at the same time, exactly. but that's not how the SEC works. They're not, I don't think they're going to do that. How many ETFs, spot ETFs do we know off of Bitcoin there are globally? Oh. <sighs> Spot. I mean, just estimate. Are we talking like five? 15? No, no, more than that. Fifteen, maybe more. But okay. th- th- there's like a hundred and eighty something crypto ETFs or ETPs. I'll call them. There, there's ETNs, ETCs. We can. We don't have to get into nuances. Fundamentally but the same. For the most part, they're technically a dead instrument, but a lot of them are spot backed, so they actually hold the assets. The difference is like some of the really cheap ones in Europe. They like the reason they're super cheap is because they lend them out. So like it's some of the reasons some of these are more expensive is because they're not lending out the underlying Bitcoin. So like if you're buying a super cheap ETF, they're probably lending out the underlying assets in some way and earning return on it. Now, that's very common in the ETF world. So like I'm going to talk traditional finance a bit, but like you can basically get virtually free access to the U.S. financial markets or any market um, using like a Vanguard ETF or iShares ETF because what they do is like they charge three basis points, 0.03%. And then they'll also lend out the underlying so they earn a little bit of return. So like basically your net net expense, like they're taking this money, but they're also earning on lending out shares and you end up paying virtually nothing, even less than what the expense ratio is many times because you're lending it out. But obviously we know the issues with lending out underlying crypto, um, Bitcoin, yeah. what have you. Um, so some of these ETFs are doing that, but they're probably. I'm going to hope and assume they're doing it in a more efficient manner than uh, some of these other guys we've seen. But basically, U.S. investors are being disadvantaged against other international 100%. investors. Yes, not even close. Yeah, not up for an argument. Yeah, bad. Okay, interesting. Huh. Okay. So, 
So when when's the lawsuit being heard? You said there's oral arguments. When do we expect a decision? By? So now we'll expect a decision. The the rough estimate is end of towards the end of two Q and into three Q, which is the end of before the end of June is possible. It's likely going to be a three Q decision. So July, August, September, somewhere in that time range. So there's no like this many days until the judges issue a statement, right? There's no guarantee, but it's probably my guess would be sometime in the third quarter, so summer. These markets are very heavily regulated. Are they over-regulated? Which markets? All of the, everything. FTC, uh, the CFTC, the, uh, the SEC. That's a real nuanced question. Um, so we can get, this is, this, is a good, this is a good thing to ask. The SEC, which I've, people have probably said, some regulators are merit regulators. Is there merit behind this investment? The SEC is not a merit regulator, which, to be honest, they were doing, that's what they're doing with Bitcoin, right? They're saying there is no merit to this investment, in my opinion. A lot of their decisions, why they didn't deny it. What the SEC is, is a disclosure regulator. They're supposed to say, disclose everything to us, which is what all these companies do. And when you don't disclose everything, it's securities fraud. So, like, um, <laughs> there's a uh, blanking on his name, but there, there's a columnist in in Bloomberg, and he says everything is securities fraud. Like if you do one thing and it's said differently in your your documents, you committed securities fraud. So basically, that's what the SEC does. They can go over anyone. It basically, if you lie and do something different with with whatever you're with however you're operating, right? So their whole goal is like disclose all the risks, disclose everything you're doing. And we'll be good, which is what they should be doing. If everyone know, everyone knows the risk at this point of what Bitcoin is. Like they're not, it's not, this isn't 2015 anymore. Um, like people understand what it is. I mean, little side note, the Winklevoss tried to launch an ETF back in 2013 when Bitcoin was $100. Like this has been going on. I'll, I'll this list is every ETF that has been filed in the US. Holy shit. What is there, like 50 on here? No, 79. 79. And I'm probably missing some. Huh, and one right. of those was filed today. But you asked about the first to market thing. If you look at the bottom, see all the dates on the filing for all those Ethereum futures ETFs? Yeah, yeah. Grayscale filed for those three ETFs I mentioned. And the next day, three issuers filed. And then your buddy Steve at Valkyrie filed also a couple days later because they don't want to be late, right? Like if you, even if it's likely or potentially likely that the SEC is going to not allow them to, to launch these, um, but in the off chance that they do allow it, you can't be you can't be seventy five days behind. You have to just file and go for it, right? Like you can't you can't let somebody else launch and beat you by to market by 70, 70 plus days. BlockFi applied. Did they? I didn't even know about that. Yep, they did. Um, all right. Uh, anything I I've not asked you with regards to these ETFs that we should have covered. Um. Not really. Uh, two, other, two other things I want to ask you about that. Do yeah. you know anything about the Coinbase uh, action with the SEC? I do. I like. I'm not. A, I'm not an expert in that. Um, so I don't actually know. All right, we won't cover that then. So, last thing I wanted to talk to you about is um, of all the companies out there reporting on Bitcoin, and I know you say crypto, Bloomberg's all right. Yeah, Bloomberg's so, pretty fair. Yeah. So we. Um, so. This is a little background. So, I, like I said, I started covering this. Actually, I'm going to give you my my first foray into crypto, into okay. Bitcoin specifically, Bitcoin mining. I was a freshman at the College of New Jersey, and we I lived. With, I had a roommate, and then I had four suite mates. So each they all they each had their own roommate. One of my suite mates, Mike H, I won't say his last name, came over in the spring of my freshman semester, 
It was like, you got to check this out. And he showed me Silk Road. And he's like, I'm mining this, this, this coin, like, and we can use it to buy things. And um, sure enough, like he downloads the software onto my computer. And so like I was mining Bitcoin technically. In 20, I didn't even understand what it was. And that, until 2016, I still didn't, like when I read Kathy Wood's white paper, she wrote a white paper on Bitcoin, like explaining the yeah. whatever. Um, that's when I really started digging in. And I was like, oh my God, I used to mine this stuff, but it blew up my computer. So like I had like, a, I literally had like a 12 page paper that I had written and my computer blew up. And I, I don't know for certain that it was the Bitcoin mining that was on my shitty laptop in 2011, but I'm pretty sure that that's what did it. So, but Mike, I reached out to him in 2017 on LinkedIn. And I was like, dude, do you still hold the Bitcoin you were mining? And he never responded and then deleted. I can't find any trace of him anywhere on the internet. So he's either completely changed his name or is like a Bitcoin millionaire somewhere. I don't know. Mike H, if you're listening to this, James, I, I would love to talk to you still. Mike H, get in touch. <laughs> yeah. That's that's wild. I guess you didn't save any of your Bitcoin. I mean, a computer blew up. Dude, you were doing getting 50 Bitcoin a block back then. Yeah. I have no idea. I, he just downloaded. He was like, I was like, yeah, you can use my computer. Just like whatever. I didn't even want it. I was like, you can use it and keep it for yourself. God damn it. And then in 2016, I got involved really did diving in. And that's when I first start, got into Bitcoin. It was actually a, like a traditional financial investment process. And Kathy Wood was up there talking about the benefits of Bitcoin back then. And I was like, okay, this is actually pretty interesting. But Bloomberg's pretty good. Like We get so fed up of all these different... But th this is what I was saying. Yeah. We weren't good. We didn't used to be good. So when we were covering it, we were dealing with news people that from the trad, trad fi, traditional finance world, yeah. that like thought this is magic... Magic internet money, it's BS. Like I heard you saying you were like you talk to people and like inflation and then you say you should buy this magic internet money. That like people just thought we were insane even writing any research on it. But you were like, wait, why are you doing this? Um, but they they hired a ton of people from different industries and different areas that were covering crypto. So we vastly expanded our crypto coverage in 2020 during the pandemic, during the heart of the pandemic. Mm. So they hired people who had traditional understanding of of crypto and Bitcoin. And that's why we got really good. But like back in 2017, when we were trying to get information on the terminal, we had a lot of clients that were like, we're interested in this. I, we wanted more data so we could write research better. And like, we just got stonewalled. We were hitting the ceiling. Like no one's like, yeah, no resources. We're not doing this. We'll do the bare minimum. So they got pricing. There was some good stuff on there. And then everything kind of changed in 2020. Um, they were like, I think they saw how much value it is in covering this market because how many people care about it. Like the, it's irrespective of their whether they think there's merit to it, they just know that people care about it and they want to understand what's going on. So they, they're investing money. So they're pro-accurate information. Correct. Yeah. 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 No, I like Bloomberg. I, I like, I've got to say, I mean, I, I can't remember you being shit at it, but all I know is recently, anything I've read on Bloomberg, I'm usually like, yeah, well, this is, this is fair. Yeah. Yeah. Good work, man. I'm happy to hear that. Well, James, look, great to meet you. Um, have you got anything you wanted to ask any? No, I think we covered it. That was brilliant, man. That was genuinely brilliant. Well done. That was amazing. Um, I hope we can do this again sometime. Yeah, I would love to. Maybe when we get an ETF. Yeah, let me know, man. <laughs> are, you, are you in Miami all week? I'm here through Friday morning, yeah. Nice one, I'll be man. at the conference on Thursday. Well, listen, stay in touch. Um, and you're usually in New York? I'm based in New Jersey. I'm in New York like once a week, every other week. Um, it's just over a bridge, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, so we actually have an office in Princeton, New Jersey. Right. Okay. So I'm based there. It's much easier to to go down there than to go all the way into New York. But yeah. Right. I'm sure we'll do this again. But thank you for coming on. Yeah. Thanks for having me. This was awesome. Long time, long time listener, first time caller. <laughs> thank you, man. Well, I appreciate that. Thank you. Okay. What do you think of that one? I loved it. I, you know what? It was funny when James came in. I was like, I know you. I've met you. And yeah, funny enough, we'd met him a year before at the conference. 
and I'm really glad we got to get him on the show. We're going to get him on the show again in the future. I think he's really smart. He understands ETFs in a way that I definitely don't, and he has a very clear way of explaining it. An absolute asset to the show. Anyway, thanks for listening as ever. If you want to get in touch, please reach out to me. It's hello at whatbitcoindid.com. All right, I will see you all soon.